0: Welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. Not only is my name Ben, but you have my absolute guarantee that I will not conduct an experiment on you in this episode. Scientists be creeping,
1: mm-hmm. creeping mm-hmm. while you're sleeping. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. <laughs> this is about creepy scientists. So this one's about <laughs> my name's <laughs> and This is Ridiculous History. And, you know, it's, it's a tough one, Ben, to, you know, conduct research on people. Mm-hmm. ...who don't know that you're doing that thing.
0: Right, right. Uh, Now, in the past, sometimes when you and I are hanging out outside of work or with our uh, super producer, Casey Pegram, uh, I have been wont to do little social experiments... You? <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I had to promise I wouldn't do anything in this
1: episode, and I, I do really appreciate you humoring me with that stuff. Yeah, man. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, friends and neighbors, to to take a quote from my, my dear friend Ben Bolin, there will be times where I will turn up to a place, like a bar or a restaurant or what have you, and I'll be waiting around for Ben to show up only to realize that he's been under the table the whole time with a tiny Moleskine notebook observing my every move and tick. mm mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And I apologize for that. I bought the next round. That's fair. And we learned a lot. It's for science.
1: Well, that's the thing. It's <laughs> a, it's it's a conundrum, right? Because it's like this ethical quandary where in order to do behavioral research mm-hmm. and really get to the heart of what makes people tick and more or less conduct these experiments, a little deception is sometimes required. Right, right. And uh we'll dive into this, but the the top level of it is
0: essentially that, People's behavior changes when they know that they are being observed there's a reason why uh, security cameras have a monitor that you can see at a bank
1: or at a gas station it's because of this same psychological principle yeah have you ever have you ever gone into a grocery store and you see the monitor up there and you kind of look at yourself and and realize how unnatural and strange you look that's because <laughs> you're looking at yourself looking at yourself and you are adjusting your look to match your expectations of what you think you should be and that's and that's never what you really are right. Right. And today's story or today's starting point
0: uh, is an example of exactly the conundrum, the dilemma that Noel describes. Back in the 1930s, there were two researchers, Mary Henley and Marion B. Hubble. And they realized uh, that they were running into this during their research on egocentricity in adult conversation, so essentially listening to adults talk to measure uh, whether their egocentric tendencies evaporated or increased or changed
1: how they changed since childhood and as it turns out that is also the name of my favorite emerson lake and palmer record it is no oh brain brain salad surgery <laughs> i don't know i'm 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 funny i think i'm funny and i'm not <laughs>
0: i think you're hilarious oh buddy yeah, man,
1: I appreciate that.
0: I, I, well, whenever I make, uh, whenever I crack jokes or puns that are originated by you, I also like to phrase it as that that was a Noel Brown
1: piece. I, I, I do appreciate that, and you know that <laughs> credit where credit is due. And speaking of that, this study, eccentricity in adult conversation by Henley and Hubble, was published in the Journal of Social Psychology in May of nineteen thirty-eight. So as part of Henley's graduate work in psychology, she and her associate Hubble were trying to figure out whether children, over time as they age, become less egocentric. Let's unpack that just a touch. So meaning less selfish, less focused on the self, and more outwardly uh, observant. Or? Yeah,
0: in in a way, and this is this is a great moment to explore this. So egocentrism is. Essentially, the inability to differentiate between yourself and the other, whatever the other might be. So to a lot of people, this would sound like narcissism, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it's different because a person who is egocentric does believe they're the center, you know, the protagonist of their own story, mm. which I think most people do. on some honest. level or another, yeah. yeah. Uh, but unlike a narcissist, they don't receive gratification from their own admiration. Like a a narcissist might feel gratification when they're walking around going, oh,
1: man, talking in the mirror. I am so great. I see. This Uh, is almost subconscious we're talking about here.
0: Right. But um, for egocentrist, it's simply it's more like you are a universe unto yourself. And you may not receive the same, like, warm fuzzies from the approval of others. You might not need it.
1: Right. I guess that's what I mean when I say subconscious. It's almost just like this innate kind of characteristic um, mm-hmm. that's very much present in kids. I mean, if you ever spend any time around kids, you know that they kind of live in this, like, wonderful little kid bubble where everything revolves around them and to varying degrees mm-hmm. of – uh Awfulness,
2: you know? and
0: it's not malicious. We're That's not what saying, I mean. I, yeah, I, I, I it's just know. it's the natural starting point
1: for the vast majority of human minds. Totally, but there are certain kids that are just garbage kids. <laughs> They're just like, what is wrong with you? Do you not see that your actions affect other people like at all? I don't know. I'm I'm speaking from the position of a parent who tries very hard to uh, engender non selfishness in my yeah. child. So when I see other kids that she's friends with at school that are just Oh, they're the worst, but your kid's cool my kid's cool, I, but you know she has her moments, but I, I think that that egocentricity um there are varying degrees of it,
0: so they were they were confronting this and and they knew that egocentrism exists it is very common in children, and they wanted to see if it declines and what that rate of decline would be, so they immediately ran into problem number one, which is that you can't just ask somebody when they're eight and then go back when they're in college and say, "Hey, do you How about now? Do you feel less selfish? How about now? <laughs> we met when you were 9, mm-hmm. um,
1: and you were you were a bad kid. <laughs> so it requires uh, a little bit of uh, of subterfuge, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And so they were going to they were going to find this stuff out through monitoring real conversations with uh, college students and they were going to do this by any means necessary. So in their study in order to keep their presence, a secret. Mm-hmm. What did they do, Ben? Oh, they, uh, they would eavesdrop in the
0: dormitory smoking rooms. Keep in mind, this is the thirties. Right. So there's a smoking room in every. There's probably thing. a
1: smoking room for kids.
0: Right, 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 right. And, uh, they were listening in, in the, uh, washrooms, the, the restrooms, which is entirely illegal. And they, uh, tapped the phones. But the weirdest thing that you and I found was that they physically went into these students rooms and hid under the bed like how long do you do that
1: yeah I don't know I'm I'm just crickets in my head here (laughs) it's like whoa like what Mm-hmm. Whose idea was this? I mean, I guess it's brilliant on the one hand because you're going to get some real information. But, like, what's the process like here? Like, is, is there breaking and entering involved? Do, right. they, do they just post up, like, all day and just hang out until their subjects arrive? And then they're just on the ready like you at the bar under the table with their notepads? Sure, yeah. That's
0: the weird thing because, honestly, these are college students. Mm-hmm. And... Physically, you would have to wait until they leave mm-hmm. so that you can leave. But what creeps me out about it is, and this is entirely speculative on my part, folks. I am more than fifty percent certain that they probably had to lay under those beds while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, you know what I'm talking about, folks.
0: Yeah, we're a family show, but I think we're pretty clear on that one because they're jumping kids. on
1: the bed. That's what I'm
0: talking about. <laughs> Uh, That's what we called it in the 30s. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they
1: didn't just stay on the campus, though. Yeah, no. They, like, went out into the world and eavesdropped in hotel lobbies, waiting rooms – Doctor's offices, movie theaters, restaurants, even on, like, in the streetcar mm-hmm. named or maybe not named Desire. Right, right.
0: And they were pursuing these subjects, so they were actively stalking them and spying on them. And they would always have their notepads handy so they could write down exactly what the people were saying and then judge it on the egocentrism. And, you know, what's interesting to me about this is – if any of the subjects prove to be you know extremely egocentric still, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. They probably you know they may or may not like the approval of others, but I don't know if they would be as weirded out by the stalking. Or if it would make sense to them that someone else was also paying a huge amount of attention.
1: Yeah, it's like a Truman show kind of scenario where yeah. it's like, clearly this is all for me and <laughs> I am the, the star here. But, uh, the, you know, the, they weren't just taking notes, right? Ben, I mean, they were essentially word for word these conversations, you know. In the moment. Mm-hmm. And we have a great quote here from a uh, clinical psychologist by the name of Dr. Ali Matu, who does a great YouTube show called The Psych Show, um, and he kind of helped shed some light on what the surrounding context of this experiment might have been. So Dr. Matu says, quote, the hallmark of psychological science is experimentation highly controlling an environment, and only manipulating one experimental variable. While this type of research can tell us a lot about the relationship between cause and effect, experimental studies can sometimes lack external validity. Mm-hmm. So give it to us, Ben.
0: So that that makes sense. The idea that if you really want to understand a process or a phenomenon, you want everything else in all possible senses to be the same. That's one of the reasons why, and this is a probably for a different episode, but that's one of the reasons why, historically, so many scientists were interested in experiments with identical twins. Mm -hmm. It's the closest you're going to get to the same person who's just two people. And then what, you know, what kind of What kind of stuff can you do? And that's met with uh, some fascinating and then also disturbing results.
1: And we certainly know that there are uh, versions of this that are manipulated, but it makes me think of uh, wildlife photographers or documentarians that, you know, when in order to paint the most realistic picture of a animal in its natural habitat, you can't go poking it with a stick. You got to stay as far away as possible and not not let it know that you're there. And, you know, after all, we're all just like animals basically
0: <laughs> right who are uh, who are very aware of being observed by an external source so the problem with an observational study wherein if you and I were scientists the problem with an observational study wherein you and I are also being observed by the participants in the study wh- whether or not they have consented to this uh the problem is that it will it will falsify the information. Right. It'll it'll taint. It. taint that's a great word. One of my favorites. <laughs> it's one of your favorite words. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to Dr. Matu, this is known as objective self-awareness. Mm-hmm. So we have another quote from him where he points out, this can be helpful in a lot of situations. Banks and other high-security environments show you security camera footage of yourself to trigger objective self-awareness and reduce the chances that you might do something stupid. Don't
1: be a dummy. (laughs) You know you're being watched. Right. You know, act act accordingly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It definitely changes your behavior, and that can be manipulated to get you to – get in line, you yeah, know what I
0: mean? Yeah, exactly. And then so if you and I are doing a hypothetical experiment and people know that we are observing them, then they may do things differently. They may try to do what they think they we want them to do, right? They may try to act as they assume society expects them to act, mm-hmm. right? Their yeah. values, their mores, or, you know, if they're if they're being a real pill about it, they might just do the opposite of what they think is
1: expected. Either way, you cannot deny that that knowledge of the observer, it, it has a serious effect. But in Henley and Hubble's time, this notion wasn't really a thing. This idea of objective self-awareness hadn't really been codified. And they also were missing a very important uh, thing that, that came about not too long after the study, but it's – The idea of informed consent that was codified in the Nuremberg
2: Code after World War II. Snag a Job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
0: This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile.
1: You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts about spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me?
0: <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paid a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a
1: month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. um lays out very, very explicitly what uh, researchers are expected to share and what they're expected to receive from their subjects in the form of complete transparency, let's call it. Mm-hmm. So it goes – I'm just going to read you a little bit of it. The voluntary consent of human subjectivity is absolutely essential. This means that the person involved should have legal capacity to give consent, should be so situated as to be able to exercise free power of choice without the intervention of any element of force, fraud, deceit, duress, overreaching, or other ulterior form of constraint, or coercion, And should have sufficient knowledge and comprehension of the elements of the subject matter involved as to enable him to make an understanding and enlightened decision,
0: which is super important. We cannot overemphasize this. We can't say it enough because the idea of informed consent is one of the foundations, one of the cornerstones of what we would consider ethical science and experimentation. And when we say that they have to have this power of choice and that there shouldn't be an ulterior motive, we also mean that consent doesn't count as agreement if it's impaired by uh, a number of other factors, like high levels of stress, you know, like making someone feel that they, they must sign this thing, right? They, you have, if you have to sign a thing in an experiment, and they, quote-unquote, make you do it, Mm. you're not
1: really agreeing. No, it's like a form of coercion or intimidation almost. (laughs) Exactly. Especially if there's pay involved and, you know, if people are submitting themselves to studies Because they need medical treatment and there is, that's involved as, as a, as part of being in the study, you get treatment that you couldn't otherwise afford. Or if you're like, you know, there are these sleep studies where people get paid. You hear about them on the, you know, college radio stations Mm -hmm. all the time. They're asking for, you know, smoker studies or sleep studies and you get a little bit of money. But some people, you know, probably really need that money. And if there's a sense that, you know, you have to sign this document or you're not going to get paid. Right. That's probably could taint the, the, the research um even more um i actually found this really interesting paper about deception and informed consent in social behavior by michael chang tech ta uh, who is a researcher at the chung shan medical university in taiwan and he really concisely goes through kind of the history of informed consent and deception and how they kind of have a relationship um with each other because As he points out there in some situations, a little deception is almost necessary to get the right results. Mm -hmm. So three examples of deception in research that he points out, one of which, you know, it's not in his list, but the story we're talking about, with you know the, the researchers hiding under beds, mm-hmm. definitely falls into this. The, the ones that he points out are the Tuskegee Syphilis Study, which is kind which was in uh, nineteen thirty two to nineteen seventy two in Tuskegee, Alabama, and the idea here was to isolate the natural progression of untreated syphilis in rural black men um, mm-hmm. who were um, you know uh, under the poverty line, and there were six hundred African American individuals who had contracted syphilis, and they were gathered up and included in this study, but they were not given the knowledge of the fact that there was already an effective treatment for this disease, and in withholding that information from them... Put them in serious jeopardy. Well, they were also they were also actively lied to because they were under the
0: impression that they were receiving treatment, uh, but they were not because they were just being used as guinea pigs to study progression of that. We've looked into this in other shows as well, and one of the big, even today, controversial things is that the official stance of the U.S. government is that they didn't infect people with syphilis; they just didn't help them when they said they would. Or they said they were helping them. And then a lot of people will question that and they'll say, no, they injected them with syphilis and watched it happen under the guise of some sort of other medicinal treatment. But in either case, it's villainous. It's inhuman to do that, to let these people deteriorate while there is
1: clearly a cure. And this is actually covered in the Nuremberg Code as well. It says at the end of the first rule um, that this latter element requires that before the acceptance of an affirmative decision by the experimental subject, there should be made known to him the nature, duration and purpose of the experiment, the method and means by which it is to be conducted, all inconveniences and hazards reasonably to be expected mm-hmm. and the effects upon his health or person, which may possibly come from his participation in the experiment. So I would say that like knowingly depriving someone of, of a treatment that exists is a form of harming that person's health. Oh, absolutely. Especially, like I said, when the person likely entered into the experiment because of the potential for getting help.
0: Right. And that's why you will often see in a college study, I don't know if you participated in any of these during your schooling years. No,
1: I have not. But, uh, you know, it's, it's never too late to try.
0: Yeah, I did it. It's a I did it because I thought it was a lot of fun. Uh, and you never know if you're going to be in one of those influential studies. That what be- was it? Uh, I I did a number of things, and m- most of them were psychological things. Mm-hmm. There was one that was framed as a market research thing, but it became pretty apparent to me partway through. They were asking us questions about gum, and it became apparent to me partway through. I was like, "This is not about."
1: Um, so this is exactly what we're talking about. I mean, <laughs> right. obviously they didn't, you know, fail to treat your late stage syphilis, but they were uh, withholding information. I, I, you do not have late stage syphilis. They withheld my juicy fruit. Yes, and that's almost
0: saying. as bad. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. So in this yeah. uh, in this paper that we were talking about from Michael Chang Tech Tai, the, the another example of uh, deception in uh, research. Is what's called the Good Samaritan Behavior Study, which was a study that was meant to um, observe uh, so-called bystander apathy. There was a situation that was manufactured in a New York subway train where a person pretended to be drunk or, uh, be an elderly person or in, would, distress. Yeah, or in distress in some way, uh, would collapse. And then the researchers, uh, measured and, you know, took notes about how helpful people or not helpful people were. Um, and this actually came about because of, you know, about Kitty Genovese. Is this the, uh, sexual assault? Yeah. She case. was a, a supposedly screamed, right. you know, bloody murder for a half an hour while being brutally raped and murdered and being
0: observed by people in the nearby apartment buildings. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. And uh, this was another example of, you know, not informing the public about what's being done, but it could yield positive results.
0: Great point here as well. This is, while we're traveling into the darkest nature of the human heart. Uh, this can be applied very easily in your own life, folks, although I hope you never have to use this trick. Uh, you have probably heard this before. If you are in a situation where you are being robbed, where you are being assaulted, or where someone is attempting to do violence toward you, and you are in a public space, you will probably have more success if you yell fire instead of help. Because people operate under self interest and they they will perk up. They may not feel like they are the person to help you, but they certainly do feel like they are a person who doesn't want to burn to death. Which is depressing but valuable.
1: Yeah, human nature is a is a
0: bugger, isn't it? Yeah, it's a real it's a real piece of work. Uh but
1: there's one more example, right? There is the infamous, I guess, Milgram experiment. Yes. This is an interesting one and, and the and the source of a lot of uh like Potential kind of pop culture touchstones, or can, sure. this, this this can be used in. I feel like I've seen a couple of movies that that kind of try to go to great lengths to like sort of take this to the most extreme conclusion that could possibly go to. Um, but the Milgram experiment was a series of psychological experiments done at Yale by Stanley Milgram, um, and they basically measured how willing the participants were to harm in some way, their fellow man and woman.
0: Right. And this happened – the experiments began in 1961. Interestingly enough, this was during the trial of Adolf Eichmann. uh, And one of the things Milgram wanted to explore was could it possibly be true that members of the Nazi regime – we're just following orders. Just following orders. Right. Where they – how do people respond when an authority figure asks them or commands them to do an escalating series of tasks? So, Noel, how about we set up the Milgram experiment? What, what What's going on in here?
1: Yeah, essentially it was sort of an interviewer interviewee situation much like uh, how where where how you and I are arranged right at this minute, only um instead of us having a nice chat about ridiculous history, I would have a button that I could push when mm-hmm. you answered a question incorrectly that in my mind delivered a quite painful electric shock to you. Bzzz. Exactly, and you would cry out in pain. Uh, and I would hear a sound that was associated with this electric shock being delivered and, you know, choose whether or not to continue this behavior. Ah, but you in this case would not be choosing. Someone would be telling you to do it. Um, excuse me, but I would be choosing whether or not to follow those orders or not. So yes, there is yeah, no yeah. element of choice there, but therein lies the, the crux of the experiment. But the, the the trick is and the joke is that – you're not actually being shocked, are you, Ben?
0: No, this is uh, the person in this situation who appears to be, be being shocked is actually a colleague of the person who is telling the participant to push the button. So there's the experimenter, right? And then there's the role you would be playing in this thought experiment would be what they would call the teacher. Mm-hmm. And that's why you are rewarding or punishing right. uh, correct or incorrect answers and the learner – is also working with the experimenter,
1: and I have been assured that I will not be held responsible for injuring um, this person.
0: And yeah, yeah, in, there is no there is no consequence to you other than the expectation to perform as you are instructed. Mm-hmm. And the thing about it is, the voltage of the shocks will increase, right? And they wanted to see how far they would go, and there was a. a A system of verbal prompts that could be added, you know, like, please continue. The experiment requires that you continue. And one of the most important and one of the most problematic, you have no other choice. You must go on. Because a lot of people in that role were saying, hey, I think this is hurting this person. Mm -hmm. You know, I think this is going too far. And the – Knobs and the, the voltage, right? Uh, all, all the instruments to control that were clearly displayed in such a way that you could see it was becoming dangerous.
1: Oh, totally. And like, it's, it's, you know, if you know anything, you know that this is a study, you know, you know that you are being, you are part of some sort of experiment. So you're not like, you know, in the military. You're not, <laughs> there's, there's no, the stakes are, are not high in that respect. So. It is a great way of measuring, you know, what kind of jerks people can be when they're given a little taste of power, right? Right. And here's the, here's the spookiest, most
0: disturbing part of the Milgram experiment. They originally predicted, Milgram and his team originally predicted that by the time it escalated to a 300 volt shock, uh, when the victim refuses to answer, they said less than 4% of the subjects would still continue and they thought maybe only a little over one-tenth of 1% would administer the highest shock on the board, which was 450 volts. However, in their first set of experiments, uh, 26 of the 40 people playing that role, Noel's role – I like that rhyme uh, – that works out to about 65% of the participants – did go all the way to that 450-volt shock, and they administered it.
2: Snag-A-Job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag-A-Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, Temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
0: This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car?
1: And more of everything.
0: Limited time special offers await at AvalonWaterways.com.
1: So, obviously, this is a pretty controversial field even today, and there are arguments for and against using deception in research. Um, Author A.J. Kimmel in American Psychology, uh, in a piece entitled In Defense of Deception, said that using deception is the only way that you can actually get certain kinds of real data, real information. Mm -hmm. And if you totally outlaw uh, deception in research, it will, quote, have the egregious consequence of preventing researchers from carrying out a wide range of important studies, right? And it's obviously a pretty delicate balancing act, but, you know, overall, informed consent is the law of the land Mm -hmm. today.
0: And uh, to bring it up, closer to a full circle today which is always beautiful when we have this opportunity you will be happy to know that mary henley and marion b hubble uh did complete their study uh no one was injured no one died being crushed by a bed (laughs) which is a possibility uh and they came up with some interesting conclusions that sound pretty solid today uh they were confirming an earlier paper that argued the young child is essentially egocentric and becomes gradually more and more socialized as evidenced by language, use of language. So they were confirming this thing and they found that although we have a common starting point in our species, uh, you know, a trend toward egocentricity, mm. As we grow, as we mature and as we meet more people and become more socialized, we may still have those tendencies, but we learn how to self-correct. You know the planet is not
1: full of billions and billions of people running around going me me me. I mean, I always say self-awareness is, is a really important uh, trait in anybody that's not a total piece of trash you know what i mean <laughs> i mean i think if you can see yourself you may still behave in an egocentric manner but if you have the ability to kind of take a step back and say oh man maybe that was sort of not the best way to act mm-hmm. you can learn from from that and i think that's something that you get over time in dealing with more people and being around more people in different perspectives but yeah they did determine that we don't actually fully shed that egocentric view at all we just you know Figure out different ways to frame it, I guess.
0: Yeah, and then and then catch ourselves, catch correct. So this is not just uh, an example of a, a funny thing that happened during a study. We've also found that there are some crucial examples throughout history. And I wanted to add one thing that you and I hadn't talked about off air, but I want to get your take on this. Sure. Does informed consent become more important in 2017? I would argue that it does, especially with the manipulation of individual participants on social media platforms. Facebook, for instance, oh, uh, man. yeah, has done uh, several experiments uh, that do clearly breach ethical guidelines for informed consent. Uh, I think it was in 2014 they had uh, – it, it was discovered they had manipulated – almost a million users' news feeds to see if that would affect their emotions. So purposely giving them news that was meant to make you sad and then purposely giving other people news that was meant to make you
1: happy. This was with the consent of Facebook or with the assistance of Facebook? Facebook did it. It wasn't...
0: For their own...
1: Yes. Like to help their algorithms or something. Oh, yeah.
0: Facebook did it. And uh, so... I would say big time not cool. Right, uh, the James Grimmelman professor of law at University of Maryland, uh, said that Facebook did not give its users informed consent under US human subjects research law and he said the study harmed participants, this is bad even for Facebook, but I do feel like we have to point out Facebook's defenders, who of course all work for Facebook, uh, one of the researchers, is a guy named Adam Kramer, and he said it was the research was carried out because we care about the emotional impact of Facebook and the people that use our products. We felt it was important to investigate the common worry that seeing friends post positive content leads to people feeling negative or left out. So they said, we did it because we were worried about you, because we care about you. That's why we didn't tell you. It's for your own good. And there's no, there's no
1: arguing that they probably did walk away with some really solid data. Of course. And that's – you're totally right because, I mean, there is kind of a version of the Henley and Hubble study that you could do today that would kind of fall under this informed consent uh, rule where you could say, you know, do it in a more controlled and ethical environment, mm-hmm. right? So all of this has to go through institutional review boards and there is a lot more focus paid on um, protecting participants. Uh, you know, that that would, might have scientists creeping around under beds and <laughs> through back alleys. Um, so, for example, studying behavior in a public space without getting informed consent from individuals, but without actually revealing their identity um, and Talking about it more in terms of an aggregate. So like if you, for example, wanted to study public behavior, um, in a place like Grand Central Station in New York, you could get a lot of great information just about how, for example, likely people were to, you know, lend a hand to their, their fellow humans or not. You could do that and get good information without describing the specifics of each case. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there, there is a way to do this, but then with the Facebook stuff, man, that really throws me for a loop because they know everything about you Mm -hmm. already.
0: Right. And now they're, now the idea is under the stated um, goal of caring about you, Facebook users, you know, worried about you Uh, under, under that stated goal, they are, they have found ways to trigger emotional mechanisms mm-hmm. which becomes dangerous and i don't want to be too preachy about it but we should admit that it is a real thing and honestly Noel, if all this stuff is happening i start thinking well why shouldn't i be able to conduct my own guerrilla social experiments you know you do ben <laughs> but You but do why should i stop then because
1: it's it makes me uncomfortable.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, you know one one of the things that I, I did a lot in the past was I loved traveling to different cities and then just choosing a different name and background and it never came back to bite me. But I was I was told by some friends I'm not going to call it an intervention, mm. but I was told by some friends that uh, you know one day it might come back to bite me pretending to be Chris from Boston. Who's just in town for the weekend. So was that the priest with the eye patch? No, the priest with the eye. (laughs) Come on, man. (laughs) So yeah, there was a priest with an eye patch, but this brings, uh, this brings us to an interesting question. Do you have any social experiments that you have conducted?
1: Yeah. Or have you been uh, the subject of a social experiment? Mm-hmm. We'd like to know. And you can tell us
0: directly at our email address, which is ridiculous at howstuffworks.com. But wait there's more there
1: is a little bit more we've got Facebook we've got Instagram we're still working on the vision board <laughs> I've added some glitter and some paste and some kind of like I unicorn like string yeah. that's, I made that up that's not real but it's <laughs> it, it's really shaping up and, and one day <laughs> one day we're going to get that out on Pinterest but not today my friend Not today. Uh, Today we are going to conclude our episode,
0: but of course not our show. You can catch Noel and I on some more ridiculous adventures through history very soon.
1: And we hope you will. Have a good one, everyone. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader.
0: I am, and uh, aren't we all?
1: We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, Smaller Ships.